If you think for a moment that you deserve anything, any little bit of what God has given you in Christ, even the smallest amount, then let me tell you definitively, you don't know God. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled God's Great Secret. Think about this for a moment. What is the one thing that, no matter how hard you try, makes little or no sense to you at all? Maybe it's complex math, quantum physics, certain events in history, or maybe even the mechanics of a modern vehicle. Those are some of the things that do remain a mystery. Well, as you've learned so far, there is one great mystery that God Himself has revealed through His Word, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Today, Tom will spend some time examining the great and glorious mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the mystery that God reveals through His Word and by His Son might seem unfathomable and impossible. Let's join our teacher now to learn more about Jesus Christ here on The Word Unleashed. Turning your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 3, the third chapter of this wonderful letter of Paul to the church in Ephesus and the churches in the surrounding area where he ministered for almost three years and six years later, wrote back to them this magnificent letter. We're in the heart of a section that is reminding us that there is a sweeping plan to history. I've read that of modern historians, perhaps none are better respected than Germany's Oswald Spengler and England's Arnold Toynbee. While neither of these men approach historical analysis in the same way, they do agree that human history is marked by one unchanging reality. Nothing is permanent. Even the most advanced cultures are doomed to, as Trotsky called it, the dustbin of history. There is, in history, a recurring cycle. There is birth followed by growth, followed by decay, and eventually death. And that cycle recurs as a constant pattern throughout all of human history. Because of that, some have come to see absolutely no meaning in history. Henry Ford, the industrialist, perhaps presented the view of many best when he said, history is the succession of one expletive thing after another. History, he says, is bunk, because they saw no meaning. He saw it as an unconnected string of human confusion and missteps. But for us, when we look at history, we come with the understanding that there is, in fact, purpose. There is a plan. God has a plan for human history that He is working out. And in Ephesians chapter 3, God lets us in on that plan through the pen of the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul begins a prayer. 
He begins a prayer in response to what he's just taught at the end of chapter 2, what we've studied together. But at the end of verse 1, as he barely gets going in his prayer, he interrupts himself. And he doesn't get back to his prayer until verse 14. And so in reality, verses 2 through 13 comprise a long one-sentence interruption or digression on the part of the Apostle Paul. In verse 1, he mentions to the Ephesians that he is the prisoner of Christ for their sakes. And that immediately reminds him that his entire life and mission is about the Gentiles. And with that, he interrupts himself. So the theme of Paul's digression here is clear. In these 12 verses, Paul repeats a word more frequently in this section than anywhere else in all of his letters. The theme of these 12 verses, this interruption to his prayer, is God's mystery. Now, if you weren't with us last week, let me tell you now, when you hear the word mystery in this context, you have got to erase from your mind all remembrances of the English word. The Greek word and the word we find in our Bibles means nothing of what our English word means. In biblical terms, a mystery is not something impossible to know, nor is it something that you come to know by careful detective work and investigation. Instead, biblically speaking, a mystery is a divine secret, a secret that was at one time unknown and undiscoverable by human beings, but a secret that God, for his own purposes, has now chosen to make known by revelation. That's a mystery. So whenever you encounter the word mystery in the New Testament, understand that you are talking about a secret that God once held, but has now chosen to reveal for us all to understand. That's the theme of this passage, verses 1 through 13 of Ephesians chapter 3. Now, we're working our way through this passage by allowing Paul to answer a series of questions about this secret, God's great secret. You see, understand this. What Paul is saying is that for much of human history, God held to himself a great secret. But he has now chosen, as of the first century, as Paul is writing, he has chosen to reveal it. He's chosen to let it be known. So we're working our way through this passage by looking at a series of questions and answers about that secret, God's great secret. The first question, and the first one that we looked at last time, is this, to whom did God reveal his secret? To whom did God reveal his secret? In verses 2 and 3, Paul says he revealed it to me. In other words, Paul says God specifically revealed his secret to me. But in verse 4, he tells us, that it wasn't just for his sake, but it was for the sake of every Christian. God revealed his secret for our sakes. God wanted us to know his secret. Now, right away, folks, that should move your heart. God didn't have to tell us, but he thought it was important to tell us, and he revealed it to Paul so Paul could reveal it to us, because in the mind of God, it was important for us sitting in Dallas and in 2008 to understand the secret. He revealed it. Verse 5 answers the second question, when did God reveal his secret? And the short answer is that 
For thousands of years, from the creation until the coming of Christ, God held the secret mostly to himself. There were hints of it in the Old Testament. But in the coming of Christ and in the revelation given to Jesus' apostles and the New Testament prophets, the secret was revealed. When? We could say in the first century, through Jesus and his apostles and prophets. The third question and the last question that we answered last time is found partially in verse 6, and that is, what is God's secret? What is the secret? Why is this so important? What is the secret? Well, there are two related but distinct answers in this passage. In verse 4, Paul says, the mystery is the mystery of Christ, the secret of Christ. The secret is the Messiah. That's what the word Christ means. In other words, listen carefully, Verse 4 tells us Christ himself is the secret. God's great secret is a person. But there's a second answer to the question in this passage, what is God's secret? You see, from time to time, Paul refers to one aspect or element of his message about Christ, the great secret, as the mystery. In other words, sometimes he uses the word mystery to describe the whole mystery, the big mystery, which is Christ, and sometimes he uses the word mystery to describe a part of the mystery. This is a figure of speech we use often. For example, if we were having a gathering and we needed to know how many people were around for lunch, I might say to you, listen, go count heads. Well, I'm not just interested in heads. I'm interested in the people attached to those heads, but we use the part for the whole. There are times when you find the word mystery in the New Testament, he's talking about the big mystery, which is Christ. Other times he'll use the word mystery just to speak of one part or element of the mystery, something Christ did, something Christ accomplished, some specific aspect of his work, and he does that here. Notice verse 6. In verse 6, Paul calls the particular element of the work of Christ that pertains to the Gentiles the mystery. Here's the mystery. It's Christ. But part of the mystery that is Christ is Christ bringing together Jews and Gentiles into one body, the church. So, Paul wants us to know that Jesus is the secret. He's God's great secret. And one part of the secret that is Christ is that by his death, verse 6, Jesus destroyed the spiritual separation that kept Jews and Gentiles apart. And now, verse 6 says, Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise. Generally speaking, the secret of God is a person, Jesus Christ. But he can also talk about specific parts of the secret that is Christ and what he accomplished, and call that the mystery as well. And in verse 6, it's what he did in bringing Jews and Gentiles together in the church. Now, that's where we left off last week. The fourth question Paul answers about the secret is how did God broadcast his secret to the world? How did God broadcast his secret to the world? It's one thing to have a secret and to reveal it. It's another thing to make sure that the word gets out which is what God wanted to happen. How did he do this? Look at verse 7. Paul says, Of which, or of the gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power 
To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages had been hidden in God who created all things. Now, if you go back up to verse 3, Paul says, God told me his secret. And in verse 5, he says, God didn't just tell me his secret, he also told the New Testament apostles and prophets. So he told... God told the leadership of the early church the secret. But how did God get the word out? Listen, it was God's plan to make known his secret to the Gentiles to broadcast it primarily through one man, the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 7. Of which, that is of this gospel I've just been talking about, I was made a minister. Here Paul returns to the theme of the stewardship that was given to him that he mentioned back up in verse 2. He has discussed the revelation of God's great secret to him. Now he turns to the proclamation of God's great secret to others. The Greek word for minister is the word from which we get our word deacon. Here it's used not of the office of deacon. Paul isn't saying, I'm a deacon. He's saying, I am in a general sense, one who serves God. That's what the word deacon means, to serve. Paul says, I have been given the responsibility to serve God. And he's going to define what that service is in just a moment. But notice before he says that in verse 7, he says, I can only serve or I can only minister because God has enabled me in two extraordinary ways. Verse 7, according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me. In other words, I am only able to minister or to serve God by the gift of God's enabling grace. God's grace not only saved me, but God's grace enables me to fulfill this responsibility. What a powerful lesson that is to us in the use of our gifts in the church. The Apostle Paul said, I can only minister because God's grace enables me to do so placed me in this role, and enables me to fulfill it. But notice he also says, I am also enabled to serve according to the working of his power. That is, by the energy of God's power. Paul says, I can only serve God and minister for God in the role he's given me by the energy of his power. And as Paul rehearses his need for grace his need for God's power, it reminds him of just how unworthy he really feels for this responsibility. And so in verse 8, he has kind of an outburst. It's like he says, to me, can you imagine that? To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. Now Paul, interestingly here, makes up his own construction as he goes. He makes what is a word in Greek that is a superlative a comparative. It's not great grammar, but it makes a powerful point. Let me roughly translate it for you in English. If we were saying in English what he's saying in Greek, we would say something like this. I am the leaster of the saints. It's possible that Paul was playing off of his Latin name here, Paulus, which means little or small. As Ken Hughes writes, Paul was saying, I am little by name, I am little in stature, and morally and spiritually littler than the least of all Christians. I am small Paul. And for Paul, understand, this isn't false humility. He's not just saying this so everybody will say, well, no, really, you're a wonderful guy. We do that sometimes, don't we? This isn't Paul. This is genuine humility. 
Paul never got over the grace of God that saved a self-righteous, angry, murderous, religious bigot. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Paul really believed that. He believed that he was the absolutely worst sinner God had ever saved. And Paul was a bad sinner. He was an awful sinner. I mean, after all, he arrested followers of Israel's Messiah. He tortured them to try to convince them to renounce Jesus Christ, and he even had some killed. But I don't think Paul's response here is because he was such a worse sinner than you and I are. I think his response is the common response of all Christians. If you have been genuinely saved by grace, you feel the same way. In fact, can I put it this way? Here is a test of the genuineness of your faith. You claim to be a Christian? Ask yourself this, Do you feel utterly and completely unworthy of everything God has done for you in Christ? If you think for a moment that you deserve anything, any little bit of what God has given you in Christ, even the smallest amount, then let me tell you definitively, you don't know God. Because when a sinner comes to really know God, He cries out with Paul, I am the least, the leaster of all the saints. Paul says, I was made a minister. And in the rest of verses 8 and 9, Paul explains how he was given this responsibility, exactly what the heart of his unique, God-given, God-empowered ministry, a ministry for which he had been handpicked by Christ. And he tells us his ministry in two infinitives. Notice verse 8, to preach, and verse 9, to bring to light. Those two infinitives explain the focus of Paul's ministry. First, he says in verse 8, I was made a minister to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Now, there are a number of Greek words for preaching, each with its own nuance. The word for preaching used here is simply the verb form of the noun gospel. So we could translate it like this. I I was made a minister to preach the good news to the Gentiles of the unfathomable riches of Christ. Paul really was a man on a mission from God. And it was a mission to the nations. You remember even when Jesus, as a little baby, was dedicated at the temple? A, A righteous man named Simeon was there, and Simeon takes the baby Jesus into his arms. Jesus, at this point, only eight days old, and he cries out, And he says, this child will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles as he holds him there on the temple court. He understood that Jesus wasn't just a Messiah for Israel. He was the rescuer, the Savior of the world. And when Jesus is raised from the dead and is ready to get that message to the world, to the nations, he chooses Paul. In Acts chapter 9, this is what Jesus told Ananias. Acts chapter 9, verse 15 about Paul, he says, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Paul got that message because later when he writes the Romans, Romans chapter 16, verse 25, listen to how he explains his mission. He says, 
Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages. He says, God told me a secret and I preach Christ. And he says, now he's making that known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. Paul understood his mission was to the nations. I want you to turn with me though back to Acts 26. Because in Acts 26, you really get a glimpse of Paul's heart and his mission. Because in Acts 26, he's before Agrippa, and he's explaining what happened to him on the Damascus Road. And notice verse 15. Paul says, during that encounter, I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And here's what Jesus said to Paul on the Damascus Road. Get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister, Paul got it, and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles. Now watch this. To whom? That is, to the Gentiles. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified or set apart by believing in me. That's your mission, Paul, and Paul never forgot it. Years later, he stands before Agrippa, and he says, this is the ministry I've been given. Now, go back to Ephesians chapter 3. He's ministering to the Gentiles. He's preaching the gospel to them. But notice he calls preaching the gospel, preaching the unfathomable riches of Christ. I love that word, unfathomable. It's not an easy word to say, but it's a great word with a profound picture behind it. In Greek, the word translated unfathomable here describes that which can't be tracked or traced. But the translators in English chose an English word that I think really does get to the heart of the Greek word. They chose an English word that pictures the measuring of the oceans. In the past, before electronic equipment, if you wanted to know how deep the water was where you were sailing, then you measured that water in fathoms. A fathom is simply the average distance between your hands extended, the tips of your fingers on one hand, and the tips of your fingers on the other hand. So, on average, roughly six feet was a fathom. To measure the depth of the water in fathoms, sailors used a sounding line. That is, a length of thin rope with a weight, usually lead, attached to the bottom of it. And they would let down that rope over the side of the ship until that weight hit the bottom. When it hit the bottom, they knew that that was the depth of the water. As they pulled that rope up, sometimes the rope would be marked with fathoms, but often the sailor would actually take that rope, and as he pulled it up, he would measure fathom one. He would pull the rope more and measure fathom two. With each pull across his body's length, he was measuring a fathom. So the word fathom came to be used as a verb to describe that process of measuring, and eventually it came to be used as an adjective as well. So that when we're saying, listen carefully, when we're saying that something can't be fathomed, that it is unfathomable, we are saying that it is so deep that it cannot be measured. The rope isn't long enough. Nobody has a rope long enough to measure this, is what Paul is saying.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his current series, God's Great Secret. Tom will bring you part four on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word, and we do hope you'll join us then. But Tom, we close today on a little bit of a cliffhanger. Could you briefly describe some of the riches of Christ that you will examine more closely next time? You know, Bill, those riches are truly extraordinary. And Lord willing, next time we're going to look at them. We're going to look at how the wisdom of God is displayed in Christ and in the gospel that we've come to believe, how the the wonderful riches include the salvation that's ours and all of the benefits that come to you and to me personally because of those riches. And it includes the church, that body of believers to which we belong. And so there's so much for us to discover and to learn together. I hope you'll tune in next time as we look together at exactly what the riches are that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks, Tom. And friend, we'd love to hear from you. If you haven't reached out before or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's the wordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.